Hello, welcome to broadcast number 54. Uh, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about research, but more importantly, I'm going to be talking about various biases that we can bring into the weight loss arena, whether it is a book we're reading or somebody we're hearing on YouTube or a broadcast like this or um, social media in posts and memes and graphics and so forth and one of the things that one of the reasons why i want to teach this um and many of you know my background and that is that um my undergraduate degrees in elementary education but my master's work was in reading specialists and um i'm a language arts curriculum author and high school former high school debate coach parent of seven kids whom we wanted to teach how to think we wanted to teach our kids to think for themselves. We wanted them to be able to hear stuff, read stuff, and take from that and say, well, you know what? Based on my experience and based on the credibility or the robustness of this research and based on what I've observed in others, this is my conclusion. That when we see a, gra a meme and we say, you know, it says right there in the meme that, uh, you know, sugar is 10 times more addictive than heroin that we don't just automatically say oh my word sugar is 10 times more addictive than heroin without knowing we might we might bring to that our personal experience that sugar is addictive to us we feel addicted to sugar and it causes us to have addictive like behaviors but do we know that sugar is 10 times more addictive than heroin and so, but, but these images come before us all the time and we're making decisions for our health and for our weight and for our lives based on all of this information that's coming through. So um, when I teach reading and I still do teach and I still do write books um, for students and when I teach reading, um, I, there are three main levels of reading that we teach children. One is literal. That is, they read it, and we, we literally say, what was Ma's name in Little House in the Prairie or whatever. And it is a literal interpretation of that. And uh, the next level is inferential. So why did, you know, why did the boy get mad at his sister? You know, so you are inferring from the circumstances and so forth. And the last one is critical. That is taking this information and coupling it with the other things that I already know. To come to a critical conclusion and that is what i want to teach my readers and my watchers and my listeners because um we need just like we want to teach our kids not to believe everything they hear or read to consider the source the experience the repeatability of it the logic in it um, that is what we need to do as consumers of information when it comes to weight management and one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this is because it has taken me a long time. Most of you know that my husband and I have recently lost 215 pounds together. And 165 of that has been in the last couple of years, in great part through intermittent fasting. And um, with that, I just know that before I have gotten to the point I am now, I believed a lot of things. And I read things and I just took them for what for what whatever they said because I always assumed 
even though I was teaching all this to my kids and my debate students and my uh, reading students and so forth, I assumed that that person was more knowledgeable than I was. And that is a, that is a bad mistake to make. Because just because, for instance, I have a degree, so I've written 50,000 pages, 100 books in language arts, doesn't mean that I know more than you in every capitalization rule, in every punctuation rule, right? And we make assumptions about people based on their background. And I'm not saying don't listen to people who have been trained because that is my bread and butter. That is what I do every day. I'm saying we still need to come to that with the same type of approach in terms of applying it with our personal our personal observations, our personal experiences, our observations of others, and the research all combined. So one of the things that we did with our kids that was really helpful and teaching them how to think that I think would be really good for us to apply here whenever we hear something about weight management, health, nutrition, exercise, whatever it might be, is to be wary of people who use the words never, ever, always, not, none, and all. All right, so with our kids, for example, we told our kids that they were not allowed to tell on a sibling with the phrase, he always leaves his clothes on the floor because then we would say to them do you suppose there was a time he didn't does he always do that every single time he takes off an item of clothing it's on the floor it's never hung up it's never in the dresser it's never in the dirty clothes it's never packed for a trip it's always on the floor and so we would come back to them with this. We need to do the same thing with weight loss. For example, you will never lose weight if you eat carbohydrates. Or you will always gain weight if you eat fat. Right? Because every one of us knows people for whom that is not true, including ourselves in many cases. So we were debate coaches. We were debate teachers. And uh, one of the things... Two, there were two main things that we taught our debaters that all debaters had to learn in order to go debate against other debaters and win their rounds, right? That's, that was always the goal, right? <laughs> and uh, one of the things they had to do was define terms. They had to say, these are, this is our plan, this is our argument, and these words mean this, all right? And so many people do not do this when they're citing weight loss research or, you know, weight or what they heard somebody say on a video or what they saw in a book. They are not defining their terms. So these are some examples that I've seen. For example, people say calories in, calories out doesn't work. Now, I'm not a big calorie counter, but to say that calories in, calories out doesn't work, I would want them to define that. I would want them to say what doesn't work about it, right? What doesn't work? Does it not work because you can't count that high? <laughs> Does it not work because you can't control the calories that you eat because you overeat? Does it not work because if you stay within the calorie allotment that, you know, online programs or um, calculators tell you that you don't lose weight? What exactly doesn't work, right? So I want that defined. I would want them to define that, those terms. 
Somebody who says, we know insulin is all that matters. I think insulin is hugely important, right? But when somebody says insulin is all that matters, I say, matters for what? Right? Matters for what? Are you saying that you can't lose weight unless you keep your insulin so low? And what is that level that it has to be at? And why do people lose weight on the Twinkie diet? You see where I'm getting here? That we can't just take what somebody says and assume that it is true unless they're defining their terms. Another one, this is a big one because everybody's into the biggest loser study. And I have never seen that show before because I get bored. I can't watch reality shows. Um, but they say, we can see that calorie restriction doesn't work from the biggest loser study. And people all the time cite this. They just say it as fact. They say it as though they've read the this, this studies in detail too, right? And my question would be, well, define it. How doesn't it work? They lost weight. So did it work? If you mean they couldn't sustain the protocol afterwards, then that part didn't work, right? And so you want to define terms. The second thing we taught in debate was that their evidence had to be from a credible source. So um, the, the debaters were trained. They were so savvy. I loved watching our kids debate. We took them all over the country for national competitions, and it was really fun. Um, but they would, somebody would say something and cite a piece of evidence, and the other team would say, now that piece of evidence that they cited, it came from such and such and such. And that is an extreme left-wing or an extreme right-wing publication, so it is not a valid publication in this debate. Kids knew that you have to have your evidence from a credible source. Um, we also trained our debaters to point out sources that funded their own research for their position. We have a lot of that in weight loss communities. And we trained our debaters to point out sources that were more magazine-like rather than true journal publication. So everybody has opinions about nutrition and politics, right? And people throw research around like it's the gospel, regardless of the source of the research, the date, the repeatability, the robustness of the research, whether it was self-reported or it was in a metabolic lab, whether it was 50 years ago or more recent. I mean, just throwing around research and it can be very, very confusing. So why we believe one over the other. So wh what do we do? I mean, how can we know what uh, to believe? Well, first of all, we have to look at who and what they appeal to. So logical biases, by their very nature, logical fallacies are uh, different kinds of ways of thinking, different thinking protocols that we get sucked into right? And that we start to think, we start to follow, we start to do without knowing that we're really doing that a lot of times, all right? And uh, logical fallacies and biases appeal to the group and they tell you that you are smarter or make you feel smarter. And you and this whole group believes this. Now, we all have said, and I've said this before too, um, you know, so I love this meme because I agree with it, you know, right? Because it makes me feel smarter, 
right? Makes me feel better about myself because this research or this meme in my case, funny memes, I love to share funny memes and tell how true they are. Um, because uh, this whole group belongs, believes it, so it can't be wrong. Okay, logical fallacies and biases appeal to the part of the brain that deals with the emotions. That's called the amygdala. This is, we hear about this a lot of times in marriage teaching. I heard um, somebody's how to argue, how to, how to argue with your spouse or something like that was a really good book that my husband and I read several years, many years ago that was um, talking about this amygdala, how it's all, our amygdala is our emotional house of our brains, the emotional part of our brain. And so these logical fallacies, these logical biases, they appeal to our emotions. And they also appeal to a primitive reaction. And you may have heard me talk about the toddler brain and the adult brain. The toddler brain wants Skittles now. The adult brain knows we should have sliced apples, right? In the case of logical fallacies and biases, they will a lot of times just appeal to our toddler brain like, yes, I agree with that. Oh my word, we, we, have, we have knowledge that other people don't have and, and we know what we're talking about here and, you know, and we're just jumping on the bandwagon and we're just, it feels so good. It feels so good for our emotions and it feels so good to have our toddler brain be affirmed in that. All right, people who fall for logical fallacies and biases can be any intelligence level. And this is really important because we have a tendency to think, well, you know, my IQ is such and such, so I don't fall for that. Or maybe you think, well, you know, I, you know, I was never that great in school, so I'll bet I'm just duped all the time, right? And that's not the case. Logical fallacies and biases can appeal to any intelligence level studies have shown studies studies have shown that highly intelligent and less intelligent people fall for them equally and this is because of those two parts of the brain that they appeal to right they're appealing to the amygdala and that's emotional and we are not very good at thinking logically when we are emotional think about fights with our spouse all logic out the window right and um, my husband would like use these terms with me. He was like, that's a slippery slope or that's a, you know, all these kind of things that we learned in debate. I was, I was like, don't debate me. <laughs> right. So because of the part of the brains, the parts of the brain that they appeal to, the amygdala, as well as the toddler brain, the irrational, illogical part of the brain, um, the, the brain that just jumps on things without thinking. Because of that, um, it doesn't matter whether you're like super, super, super smart or you might be more challenged academically or um, IQ wise, and it doesn't matter. We both can fall for these things, right? Or if you're somewhere in the middle. All right. Um, so my son gave me a really good example of this. He actually helped me with this because he's so smartical, as my kids like to say. Um, and uh, he reminded me because he was in debate with, we. We joined debate because of him, our oldest son. And then he later on helped us teach debate too and coach it and judge it. Um, so the two race car examples, he said that you can have two race cars that are sitting there and they, uh, one can be a beautiful, shiny, brand new, you know, perfectly working race car. And the one beside it can be like an old clunker that hardly moves at all. But if they're both turned off, 
neither race car will win. Right. And this is true with logical fallacies and intelligence and thinking that even though someone might be extremely smart and when they're not thinking with their adult brain, their prefrontal cortex, but instead they're driven by the amygdala, they're driven by the toddler brain, they're not turned on, just like that beautiful shiny race car is not turned on, so it doesn't make a difference at all. All right, I'm going to bring to you six common logical fallacies and biases and give you some examples of them that I've seen in weight loss circles. And I'm also going to give you something at the end of each one to look for. It's really important that we're able to apply it. It's one thing just to like cite information about a bias um, or um, a fallacy, but if we don't really see it in our own lives, then we won't be able to apply it and get better. And I want us all to get better at thinking. I want us all to get better at discerning. Because what if somebody believes something that somebody says and they never lose weight or they never get healthier because of it? We stop to think about that. As somebody who presents weight loss information all the time, I feel extremely burdened and extremely responsible to not just tout things. I can remember when I first started this uh, group and I first started writing about intermittent fasting, one of my ideas was to take a piece of research each week and present it. And I realized when I was starting to gather those pieces of research that I was doing the very thing that I don't want done to me. I don't want somebody just to come along and say, hey, there's a new research study now that shows that if you eat too much fat, you'll gain weight because fat has nine calories per gram. And it's not that if that research study is not in context, if it's not surrounded by repeatable, robust research, if it's not on, you know, in a metabolic ward, if it's not, I mean, just so many things. And I realized that if I do that, I am just giving bits and pieces of information without having it be repeatable, without having it be um, robust, without maybe having it even be accurate, right? And so that's one of the reasons why I want to teach my listeners to, to think for themselves. To I, I don't want you even just to believe everything I say, although I will say that I do try very hard to bring what I really think is true without trying to get all of these biases and isolated research. You know, instead, is this piece of research repeated over and over and over again? You know, are there meta studies on it? Are there longitudinal studies? You know, so, and also coupling it with my own experience and my personal observations of people around me. So I want all of us to be able to do that for ourselves, because what if it makes a huge difference in what you do? What if, you know, you are using 90 minutes a day on a stationary bicycle at the Y, but you aren't working on your food components, and you're, the food components you are working on are not accurate, and you're not doing any strength training, and you're increasing your appetite so much that you overeat, and you did that and you spent all that time and all of that without understanding how exercise fits in the whole picture of health and weight management, right? And then you would have wasted all of that time and you might not have lost weight.
I'm not saying an exercise bike is bad by any stretch of the imagination. Have you ever seen those people on those bike, those cycling classes? So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying instead, what if I'm saying that what if you took information and it was invalid and you just kept applying it and applying it and applying it because you didn't bring together everything you needed. So let's go on with the six logical fallacies and biases. The first one is called an anchoring bias. And this, in a nutshell, is believing the first piece of evidence that you receive. This is super compelling in weight loss and nutrition because we learn something from one source and then any source that disagrees with that first source is automatically wrong. Right? We see this in Facebook groups all the time. And Facebook group loyalty is super nice. It's great for helping people and it's great for business building, both. I love Facebook loyalty. Right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but what we can do is we can get into that group and we can be like, this person said this and now everybody else is wrong. It doesn't matter because this person, the very first person that I learned this information from is right. And you feel smarter when other people's opinions are presented because you've got this first person, you know, and this is an example from my life. When I used to attempt very low carb and some keto, and when I branched out, I was biased against carbohydrates, saying things like, if you're going to eat an apple, you might as well eat a Snickers bar. At least it has protein in it too. I was biased against all carbohydrates instead of considering the fact that people lose weight eating carbohydrates all the time, especially people who eat only real foods and vegetarians and vegans and Whole30s. I mean, they're constantly eating real carbohydrates and losing weight. But my bias was against carbohydrates. They were anchored, it was anchored in the belief, my first belief that all carbs are bad, even healthy ones. And I'm a person who has to watch carbs. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that low-carb diets don't work. They do help people a lot. But to say something so extreme as if you're going to eat an apple, you might as well eat a Snickers bar, is very biased. All right, so things to look for with this one are, do you never change your mind with new data? Do you never change your mind when because you're so in belief of that first person who gave you the information. Number two, choice supportive bias. And this one is when you can't see the drawbacks in your own position. Now these are so closely linked, right? Some of them depend on where they originate, some of them depend on groups, but they are all logical fallacies and logical biases. So this one, we cannot see drawbacks in our own position. Once we make a choice, we can't be wrong. Right. And we say this about our kids. He's so stubborn once he gets something in his head. Right. But we are that way as adults, too. We feel smart with our original choice and we do not want to admit that we are wrong. I love it when I hear people who have been teaching for a long time. I heard Dr. Stephen DNA um, of the hungry brain. He's a brain researcher, a weight researcher. I've heard him say, I've changed my thinking on this. And I just respect him so much, right? To be able to say, especially somebody big who, you know, is cited over 2,000 times in scientific literature, to be able to say, I've changed my thinking, my position, my look on this. I'm just so respectful of people who do that. 
we won't believe any downsides in our original choice because it makes us look like we were wrong. We don't want to be wrong. It's okay if you're wrong. I'm wrong all the time. We should all just be wrong, right? Right? <laughs> because being wrong means that we are looking at ourselves and we're evaluating and we're changing. Oh my word. I love to find out when I'm wrong. So this uh, takes research and critical thinking, but then even good research, we might get come along. Good research will come along. And we, it won't convince us because we have that first must be right choice. All right, so you need to be just as critical about what you don't believe as you are about what you do believe. Isn't that profound? Just as critical about what we don't believe as we are with what we do believe. So we need to come along and say, you know, I don't believe, for example, that upping protein would help with weight management. I do believe, you know, that upping fats will. Well, then are you just as critical when you read stuff about protein as you are when you read stuff about fat? I'm not saying either one of those is right. I'm saying we have to be just as critical about what we do not believe as we are about what we do believe. Right? When we do believe, we're all about the research. We're all about, you know, this is why it's true. So what about what you don't believe? Go see what they think. Go see why they believe it, right? All right, so... Um, this is an example of something that I changed on when I first began teaching intermittent fasting. I taught that you should open your window with the low-carb food. Some people really still do well with this. But I taught it as like, this is going to be the best way so that you won't overeat. You're going to keep your insulin low for the first part of your eating window, which works really well for some people, right? But I taught that everybody should do it. And I didn't see any downsides to it like satisfaction in your foods. Some people just want a potato, right? Some people want an apple. Some people want a bowl of watermelon. That was me. I wanted a bowl of watermelon. Good watermelon. Um, but because I felt my original choice was right and I had been teaching it, it was hard for me to go back and say, open with real food. If carbs work better for you, as long as it's real, do it. If no carb foods work better for you, as long as it's real, do it. Okay, um, and so instead, be a study of one, right, and look and see what works for you. So that is an example of something that I was using choice-supported bias. And the thing about it is once we tell people something, especially as a teacher, we don't want to have to come back on that. But a good teacher will come back on that and, and want the best for her students all the time, or his students or his readers or whatever. All right, so something to look out for with this one is, can you list the problems with your position? So in the, my case, my problem, the problems was saying that everybody should only open their eating window with low-carb foods. The problems were, number one, some people eat too much fat when they do that, and they eat too many calories. Number two, sometimes people who do really well with real carbs, when they just open it with a low-carb food, they aren't satisfied. Not I'm not talking about satiation where you're full. I'm talking about satisfied food-wise with your food choices. 
And so then they have a harder time not grazing during the fasting, during the eating window. So I needed to look and see all the problems with whatever I was promoting. Number three is confirmation bias. And this is looking for evidence that agrees, I go here, that agrees with something we already believe. Looking for evidence that agrees with something we already believe. Again, these are similar, but instead, this one, we are going out of our way to find people who agree with us, right? And we're reading all the books and we're putting them on Facebook. I agree with this book. I agree with this book. This is the best book I've ever read because we agree with it. We look for articles, studies, blog posts, Facebook posts, et cetera, that would agree with something that we already agree with. This forces us to exclude good research or conflicting information. It also forces us to stay in our own shell and only listen to people to, with whom we agree. And it makes us feel smart because we, again, have that people, you know, that people are bringing with us. And an example of this is when somebody only reads through a social media thread for their own pleasure because the people on that thread agree with them. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? I do this all the time in Disney World junkies. I go through and I read the threads because they all love Disney World. Disney foodies, they all love Disney food. And I read them because they agree with me. And I love that. <laughs> right? And it gets me excited for my next trip. <laughs> so it might not be any research at all involved. We're just reading these threads because these people are our people. And they agree with us. And we agree with them. And confirming our biases makes us feel smart. So another example of this is when we believe, when somebody believes that insulin is all that matters in weight loss. So then we see a study about how thousands of people lost weight with calorie restriction and we won't even open it. It can't be true because they ate all day when they didn't control their insulin and they ate whatever they wanted and they just controlled their calories. So they didn't keep their insulin down all the time. So it can't be true. Again, I'm a big believer in the effect of insulin, but this is an example of confirmation bias. We won't even open something if we think it, dis we dis it disagrees with what we think. All right, so something to look out for with this one is, do you seek out information because it makes you feel good? I do. Like I said, with Disney World all the time. Number four is ostrich bias. And this is ignoring negative research or contradictory information. Okay, this is similar to confirmation bias, except instead of in confirmation bias, we are more looking for evidence that agrees with us. And in, uh, ostrich bias, even if it comes and hits us in the face, we have our, our head in the sand like an ostrich, right? So we just can't be an ostrich with our head in the sand. So we have our head in the sand. And we have make a decision to ignore negative info or research anything to the contrary. We ignore it entirely, sticking our heads in the sand. A good example with that is my Diet Coke habit. I had a really bad Diet Coke habit. Um, three 32-ounce Diet Cokes a day in foam cups from two certain places. Very, very specific. And um, this was before I started natural supplementation, which helped me Actually, that's when I overcame my Diet Coke addiction entirely. But we can overcome all kinds of addictions through intermittent fasting, too. And I love to teach you about that. So stay with me. Um, 
But with my Diet Coke issue, I would not, people would send me articles and I just would delete them. I wouldn't even read them about, you know, the dangers of aspartame and um, so forth and about how bad diet drinks are. And now it's not that I never ever have a diet drink now, but I hardly, I mean, like, I don't know, one thirtieth of the time I used to before. I mean, it's just so small. Um, but I didn't open them. I didn't want to read them. So things to look out for for this one, have you purposely researched the opposite? So my position was Diet Coke isn't bad. Did I purposely research the effects that Diet Coke had on me? Now I've since found out that it has a lot of nerve problems. You have a lot of nerve problems with aspartame and that was uh, contributing to my restless leg syndrome at night. Um, or have you ever said there is no evidence for this? Oh my word. If I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say that in the books and the research that I do, I would not be driving what I drive. There's absolutely no research on this. None? Seriously? You know this for a fact? You've looked up every piece of research. A good researcher, again, going back to Dr. Gayanay, will say the research is sparse on this, or the research is short on this, or the research is old on this, or the research is not as robust, or it's not repeatable. But to say there's no research on something, I actually put listening to a lot of people on YouTube who say things like that. I just, I just can't listen to somebody who's trying to appeal purposely to me by telling me that there's no research on something when it, it can't be true. There has to be a little bit of research. And maybe it's just a wording thing. Maybe it's just semantics. Maybe I'm too picky about vocabulary. But I just really don't think that's a very good way to approach weight management, health, and nutrition when you're trying to help other people. Number five, or yourself. Number five, the bandwagon effect. And this is a cultural one, and it is something is popular everywhere, so people believe it. This is huge social media, and it's more, like I said, cultural. So it's, so it's like big groups of people believing. It's not just like a Facebook group. It's more like a cultural belief. And um, it's so easy to join a bandwagon and be confirmed in what we believe, morning, noon, and night, every hour on the hour on social media. And that's why this bias is huge right now. It's, I mean, it's gotten so much bigger than, you know, before we had uh, the internet. So fads, popular things, cultural things. And again, we must be smart because so many people believe this, right? We'll hear people say, you know, it can't be wrong. Look at how many people do it. Ooh, do we want our kids to say that? <laughs> All right. So an example of this is breakfast is the most important meal. Um, now, this is for adults only. Children and teens and elderly have different nutritional needs. But for years, the bandwagon was that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. And we, even now, you'll hear people in the group, in groups say, you know, I, I'm interested in fasting, but I don't, you know, want to skip breakfast because I know it's the most important meal of the day, right? That is a bandwagon. We are joining it because everybody in society seems to believe it at that time they did. All right, so things to look for with this one are, have there been longitudinal studies on your position? 
longitudinal studies being you know long-term repeated studies is there a consensus in the scientific community or is it primarily pushed by influencers we see this a lot on youtube videos where people you know they believe a certain uh, cultural thing like breakfast and then they just teach it over and over and over again and finally the last one is the false consist consensus effect false consensus effect and again the whole outline I think it's I don't even know eight pages long the whole outline is available will be available at Donna Reach with broadcast number 54 um, but this is your group has special knowledge and your group knows more than other groups do we see this all the time and like I said loyalty to a group is great because if you have somebody who's teaching really good information who's bringing like in weight loss bringing together like my coach and and what how I'm being trained is to bring together your thinking your brain with your dopamine spikes and cravings and all of that your insulin and dope and hormones such as leptin and ghrelin bringing all that together with food all of that is one package then being loyal to that person is really good because you're going to learn so much that's why I'm extremely loyal to my weight loss coach because she meets all these criteria for the most part there are still some things that I disagree with here and there right there always will be if there aren't things that you disagree with then you need to check your own biases and you need to check your own ability to think right and how whether you're using your amygdala and your toddler brain rather than your prefrontal adult brain to think things through okay so one of the biggest ones for people right now in live groups and social media is this false consensus effect and when we are immersed in a certain belief with people who have that same belief all the time we think that's how everyone thinks or at the very least that's how everyone should think even if everybody doesn't at the time we, this is similar uh, a similar has similar dynamics to the bandwagon except it's not as universal it's more like in a bubble so you know our group believes this and we hear people say all the time if it's if if it's if it's something that dr. so-and-so says I believe him I trust 100% right yeah we should never trust anybody 100% right does any is anybody perfect does everybody know does anybody know everything there is to know all right um, this also feeds into our self-esteem because people agree with us this is a big one because we have our small group believing with us our bubble right an example of this is that I was in an exercise group that said that weights were terrible all right weights were terrible they were bad for you um, and so I agreed and I said I can never do weights they're boring and ineffective I made jokes about the metal and the clunkiness of the weight machines at the Y because I was in this bandwagon this bubble of weights are bad weights are bad okay and then the group continued to feed into that and you'll hear this like maybe in a yoga group for example where they're like you know you know you just need your body weight you don't need weights and so that's kind of it wasn't a yoga group but that's kind of what fed into this and I love yoga <laughs> so um, when my hamstring is not hurt but uh, we're going to believe whatever is in that group and it's really more pervasive than even the other ones because we have our small little bubble and we're just like smiley face love heart 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 all the time right all right so things to look out for in this one are mocking sarcasm name calling and 
ad hominem attacks that impact the person. So um, in these groups, a lot of times we'll say, we'll see people say, yeah, so you'll never believe what my Weight Watcher teacher just told me. And I'm just like, and then they'll hashtag Weight Watcher losers or something like that, right? Even though Weight Watchers is actually one, I'm not on Weight Watchers, I have no uh, link to Weight Watchers, but Weight Watchers is one of the, maybe only 2% success or 3% success, but that's a lot better than 1% success. It has more success than many, many other weight loss programs. But because this group, this bubble is anti-calorie counting or anti-point counting or whatever, so because of that, they're, you know, hashtag, yeah, weight my Weight Watchers leader never knew anything either, and da-da-da-da-da. And they're making attacks on this person they don't even know. What kind of people make attacks on people they do not even know, right? Like, oh my word. Yeah, be kind. We need shirts. Be kind, right? But anyway, we get caught up in this with this false consensus effect, and it becomes so easy to do. So, 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 so easy to do. So anyway, these are six uh, logical fallacies and biases and some ways that we see them in weight loss communities and in nutrition and exercise and so forth and things that I would love for you to take in and be able to watch out for for yourself so that you don't ever believe something that might not serve you so that you don't ever practice something absorb it take it in and it and embrace it and then have it not work in the end. But because of these biases, you believed it 100%. So keep an open mind. Keep an open mind when you're reading, listening, watching, learning, right? Look for these things in Facebook groups and social media and in books and in YouTube videos and so forth. Watch out for these things. And use three things. I'm gonna be, I have a two-part research one coming up. Not yet, but in a while. And the three things that we need to look for are our personal experience. If something worked for us, then we can honestly say to that person who said, if you eat an apple, you can't lose weight. You do. That is not right. Observation of others. We can see what helps other people. We can see what works for other people. And then robust research. Bringing these three things together will be the best way to design your eating protocol, your exercise plan, your fasting hours. It'll be the best way for you to meet your health and weight management goals. Thank you so much for joining me. I know this was long, and I really appreciate you watching. Get the outline at DonnaReach.com and um, join the Facebook group if you're watching this on YouTube, Donna's Intermittent Fasting Group, uh, so that I can help you achieve your goals and the results that you want in your life. Thanks a lot.